This is Dominic Preziosi, and we're here today with a special year-end episode of the Commonwealth Podcast. I'm happy to have our producer, Griffin Olenek, with us, and we're going to listen to some of our favorite segments from the year 2020. Hi, Griffin. It's great to be with you today. Hey, Dominic. So I'm really glad that we're uh, able to do an episode like this. So why don't you tell our audience what we're about to hear? As everybody knows, 2020 was a particularly rough year. So we invited the Commonwealth staff to look back on the podcast episodes that we'd done, many of which were remote for the first time, and to select the ones that we thought were our favorite and also some of the most representative of the kind of work that we do. And as we were listening through and putting this show together, we noticed a kind of common thread that struck us as very typically Commonweal. All four of the segments that you'll hear on this episode exhibit the impulse to challenge, confront, and create. And they also, as is typical for us, find reason to hope. Yeah, I think that encapsulates it real well, Griffin. And I should say, Griffin is something of our showrunner here, so he's really instrumental in putting together the Commonweal podcast, and so I'm I'm glad that he's able to sort of help us do this today. And Griffin, let's get to the first uh, segment. Why don't you set it up for us? Right. So the first interview is with Susan Bigelow-Reynolds. She's a professor at the Candler School of Theology at Emory University in Georgia, and she speaks here with associate editor Matt Sittman about the profound demographic changes taking place in the Catholic Church today. She was featured as a lead article in our parish issue, which debuted right as the pandemic was beginning to unfold in the middle of March. And what I found so interesting about what Susan says is that we should, in a sense, advice for the pandemic, even though it was recorded before the pandemic, which is we ought not to be afraid of the changes that are taking place. We can welcome them. We can respond to them creatively and proactively. Yeah, it's a really, really great interview. So let's take a listen, Griffin. Thank you. I want us to get out of crisis mode, I guess, when I'm talking about change. So we have these sweeping transformations that are underway in in the church. We're we're closing parishes, we're consolidating parishes, parishes are becoming much more diverse. And so the the models of parish life are changing, the the boundaries outside of the church are changing, the boundaries within the church are changing, our geographical scope of parish life is changing. If you compare two maps together, if you sort of envision two maps in your mind, one that shows a net gain in Catholics (laughs) in the United States, and the other that shows where all of our Catholic institutions and sort of infrastructure are located. They are exactly the opposite. (laughs) And so all of our Catholic universities and parishes, even though they're closing and other things, institutions, institutes, high schools, you know, elementary schools, they're all for the most part located in the Midwest, in the, the Northeast. If you look at where the Catholic Church is growing and flourishing, it's all in the South and West. And so what you have is this kind of, uh, disparity. There's a there's a misallocation of resources right now. The church is kind of running to catch up with itself. And finally, I talk about the shifting boundaries of, you know, belief and practice and affiliation. You know, people are disaffiliating from the Catholic Church. People are expecting different things of their parishes, their parish life. So there really is this state of profound instability and change. And I think um, as both sociologists and also theologians don't quite know what to do with that. 
what I want to urge us to do is to take much more seriously um, as a whole church, the work of Latino theologians, because for decades, really since, you know, just after the Second Vatican Council and for centuries in practice, but, but in terms of written theology for decades, it's been primarily Latino theologians who have been calling the church to embrace these borderlands within our midst to, to recognize uh, differences in practice and affiliation and tradition, not as reasons to, to feel like the church is crumbling and falling apart before our eyes, but rather as, as real opportunities to recognize these growing edges, to recognize the inbreaking of God's grace and revelation in our midst. So I things are changing. And, you know, in some ways we have reasons to be concerned, but I think in a much broader way, this is an opportunity for us to listen to the Holy Spirit and to kind of live in to these transformations. The Christian story is one of, of kind of death and resurrection, right? You have to lose your life to gain it. What would you tell our listeners about how to lean into that? Like, what would be your advice to them if, if they see these changes around them, if they are more caught up in the gloom and doom story? You know, what's your kind of word of hope to people? I'm recalling here a lot of the work that I've done around the sexual abuse crisis, too, because throughout that, I've had the thought that this really has the capacity to become a kind of Kairos moment for the church. There is a sense in which something real has died people's patience with uh, insufficient authority has died. You know, our models of church life are proving themselves in many ways to be insufficient to the needs of the church today. So there is a sense in which there are things here that are ending and death is painful. You know, so when when I talk about parishes, for example, where, you know, it used to be a, a to use my own example, you know, a, a Slovak American community, very insular, very strong. And now, you know, there's one parish for the entire town and it's predominantly Mexican-American. There is a sense of grief there that those, you know, older Euro-American parishioners have, you know, not not grief at the other coming in, but just grief at the fact that this community that they've maybe been a part of for 80 years isn't the same as it used to be. What I would encourage our listeners to do or to, to embrace, to lean into, you know, is that the power of these new voices that are really responsible for the transformation of the church today. I mean, I think we're very used to reading pieces and hearing about the fact that the, that the church is coming more diverse. Um, you know, as we, 40% basically of Catholics in the United States today are, are Latino, a very strong Asian American presence, African American, Native American Catholics. So really Euro-American Catholics are, are becoming a, a minority in the church. At the same time, we have this very stark asymmetry of power. So most positions of power, whether we're talking about ordained power or lay leadership, particularly paid lay leadership, are still held by Euro-American Catholics. The vast majority of our priests, the vast majority of our bishops, the vast majority of theologians are white, are you American? So we can talk all we want about diversity, but if we're not empowering diverse Catholics, if we're not empowering Latino Catholics, if we're not empowering Asian American, Native American, African American Catholics, if we're not giving them positions of power in our parish, if we're not paying our lay leaders from those communities, then the church is going to continue to be a place where these power asymmetries prevail. So what I want to encourage our listeners to embrace is just the sense that we don't need to be afraid. <laughs> we don't need to be afraid of change, but that also requires us to relinquish the power <laughs> that we have been holding on to very tightly in our communities and not just to listen, but to really empower and embrace these new voices. 
So Dominic, tell us who we're going to hear from next. So I had the great pleasure this year of not only reading a book from Stephen Huff called Rough Ideas, Reflections on Music and More, but getting to talk to him. And Griffin, like you said earlier, this is another of the episodes that we broadcast sort of at the beginning of the pandemic. So that sort of shaped our discussion. But there's an essay in Stephen's book called Is He Musical? And I thought it was one of the most powerful things I've read in, in quite some time. So I took a moment on the podcast to ask him specifically about this piece. Sounds great. Let's take a listen. This is something that was a common way, I think, around the Victorian time of asking, is someone homosexual, someone gay? Is he musical? So it, it's what you know, it's one of those things you, you don't even want to mention the word, but this was a way around it. Is, is, he, is he musical? So that was the, of course, that's my life, music. So I, I thought it was a, a neat way of introducing this chapter. When you grow up, I mean, I realized that looking back now that I was gay from the age of about five, I had very strong affective feelings for other men, other boys rather, of my, of my own age at a time long before I knew what anything was. And as I grew older, I started to recognize those feelings for what they were. And then eventually I was able to put a name to them. And they're exactly the same feelings that just developed as I developed over those years. Now, in my evangelical background, of course, I also was told that this was sinful. It's a slightly different take, I suppose, from the Catholic one, because in the evangelical understanding, you are saved, and nothing can take that away. You can't, you know, no sin can take away that salvation. So it wasn't a matter of going to confession, but I certainly spent many time on my knees at night, you know, with the Psalms reading and, and, and trying to feel repentant and, and trying to suppress these feelings. And eventually, one of the things that was so wonderful to me when I became a Catholic was and I wanted to become a priest was, my goodness, these are people who never have to answer that question again. Why aren't you married? Why haven't you got a girlfriend? Because I'm a priest. I can't. And it was such, I thought, what a release that would be to have that as my excuse when my mother would say, you know, have you got a girlfriend yet? Or what about, you know, Joanne, isn't she pretty? And all of that. I could just sweep it aside and wouldn't have to answer that. And I know, because I've spoken to them, but I also suspect with many, many more that, that some people did enter the priesthood with that as one of the reasons. You come from a large family, big Irish, big Italian, big Polish family, you know, 10 kids, 12 kids, everyone's getting married, you have self, uh, same-sex attraction, how do you tell anybody that? Well, of course you can't, because you risk being thrown out of the house and never spoken to again by those whom you love the most, your family. But yeah, I think in the end, it was reading Love and Responsibility of Pope John Paul II, St. John Paul II, and realizing what a wonderful vision he has of, of the goodness of the flesh, you know, and of sexual attraction and appetite and, and, and relationships. And that this is something absolutely embedded in the world that God created and wanted us to live in. And so it's a very small step from there to, well, if this is, let's leave human beings aside for, for a minute, but if this is in the animal kingdom, if this is something which is in penguins and which is in monkeys and which is in other parts of, of life, and of course also in, in human life, Catholicism tells me that the creation is something good. So what? Did God make a mistake? Is this, is this just something that we've messed up? 
And even if it isn't the ideal, uh, there are many things that are not the ideal. God makes or allows people to be made with with one hand or with no hands or with no legs. Or I mean, these are not ideal situations. And I'm not actually comparing homosexuality with that, but I, I think you can come at this from, from many different angles and from many different levels of acceptance and understanding. But it seems to me that, that this natural world that, that we're told to reverence and to love, God saw it and it was very good. You know, that's repeated six times in the first book of the Bible, and it was very good, and it was very good. It's a mantra of blessing. And if we find that that homosexuality is, is also in creation, or as Hopkins puts it, the dappled things, you know, the, the fact that things are not always just simple, black and white, that they're multicolored, and then perhaps there's a way for that to be also something that God thought was very good because God made that. Support for Commonweal comes from Simon & Schuster, publishers of Let Us Dream, The Path to a Better Future by Pope Francis. In his most personal and inspiring writing yet, Pope Francis discusses how we can emerge from the COVID crisis stronger and more unified than ever. To come out of this crisis better, we have to see clearly, choose well, and act right. Let's talk about how Let Us Dare to Dream, writes Pope Francis in Let Us Dream, before providing a blueprint for a more equitable society, one ready to confront income inequality, climate change, and other major issues facing the world with love, compassion, and faith. Let Us Dream by Pope Francis is available now in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook. So Griffin, we're going to hear a bit from what was our most listened to episode of the year, an interview with Father Brian Massingale. That's right. Yeah. So here he's in conversation with Commonweal Assistant Editor Regina Munch. And what's so interesting about this segment that you're about to listen to is that Father Massingale doesn't just explain racism and what it's like to suffer its effects, uh, something he confronts every day as an African-American priest in the Catholic Church, but really lays bare the Roman Catholic Church's failure to confront white supremacy in the United States. Okay, why don't we listen? In 2018, the U.S. bishops published the pastoral document, Open Wide Our Hearts, which was meant to address racism in the U.S. after the events of Charlottesville and a rise in white nationalism. And you've called the document a missed opportunity. What did it say and what didn't it say? I'm going to be very honest because I think that We've reached a time in America where if we don't say uncomfortable truths, then we will never make any progress when, it deals with, when we deal with racism. Yes, in my public talks before, I've said that the document was a missed opportunity, but I now have to say that the document then and now is so inadequate as to be virtually useless. And that's a very strong statement, so let me let me document that. The 2018 statement, as you said, came in response to the events of Charlottesville, when we saw white nationalists being re- nationalism being resurgent in this country in a ways that we've not experienced in decades since the darkest days of the civil rights movement, when we have open white supremacists marching in the streets of an American city with torches 
saying, you will not replace us. Jews will not replace us. The document, unfortunately, fell far short in that it never named white nationalism as a social crisis in America. The phrase white privilege does not appear in the document. The phrase Black Lives Matter doesn't appear in the document, despite the fact that this was a, has been a major social movement in the United States since the acquittal of George Zimmerman for the killing of Trayvon Martin. The other thing that the document does is when it speaks of racism, it speaks of it in the passive voice. African-Americans were excluded from opportunities. But it never says who did the excluding or why. In other words, the document basically reflects a document that was written by white people for the comfort of white people. And in doing so, it illustrates a basic tenet of Catholic engagement with racism, that when the Catholic Church historically has engaged this issue, it's always done so in a way that's calculated to not disturb white people or not to make white people uncomfortable. Even when the document talks about police violence, it does so in a very, to me, bizarre way. It says, we must admit that people of color experience their encounters with police officers to be fearful. But then it goes on to say it condemns violent language directed at police. So they never condemn police abuse of power or police misconduct. And this despite the fact that at that time, the Department of Justice had investigated over 24 police departments in the United States and entered into consent decrees with them over blatant police abuse of power. But that's never reflected in the document. So I think that the document really is woefully inadequate to the challenge of the time. Part of the reason for such accommodation for white people's comfort, you've said, is that the church sees itself as white for white people. Can you say more about that? Mm. What makes the church white and racist is the pervasive belief that European aesthetics European music, European theology, and European persons, and only these are standard, normative, universal, and truly Catholic. In other words, when we talk about what makes something Catholic, the default is always to the products that reflect a white cultural aesthetic. Everything else is seen as Catholic by exception or Catholic by toleration. And we see it in a, in a number of ways. I went to celebrate Mass at a suburban parish. Um, this was back in, in Milwaukee. A priest friend of mine had suddenly taken sick and he asked me to take the Mass for him. And I showed up at church and I asked the usher to direct me to the sacristy. And he looked at me and he wanted to know why I wanted to know. And so I explained the situation, thinking that my 
Roman collar that I was wearing would make it kind of obvious why I would like to know what a sacristy was. And he looked at me and he said, you're a priest. So who sent you? And so I explained the situation again. And then he said, well, next time I hope he sends us a real priest. Now we can get you know, very upset with him and his, you know, individual insensitivity, bigotry. But he's reflecting something that's very peculiar, that's very ingrained in the church. And that is, we expect the person who's going to be the priest to be white. People always ask me, you know, well, how many African-American priests are there? And I tell them that well, currently there are less than a hundred of us on active duty in the United States out of tens of thousands. And it's always been that way that Catholic black that African American priests in the United States constitute less than one half of one percent of the total Catholic clergy, and that's not by accident. It's a reflection, a manifestation of this normative whiteness that to be blunt, it's a form of idolatry that God can be imaged and God can only manifest God's self through Europeans and European cultural products. And so, yeah, there is a normative whiteness present in the church, but I will also say that it's a form of idolatry. It's the worship of a false God. So Griffin, we're going to wrap up today with a segment from an episode that really was kind of one of the most inspiring to me all year. In fact, I listened to it two times in a row, one after the other while helping make Thanksgiving dinner. Well, yeah, I mean, it was inspiring to me as I listened to it as it was being recorded. It's a conversation between Ellen Koenig, a former Commonwealth staffer who now works with Springtide Research Group based in Minneapolis, and Commonweal Managing Editor Katie Daniels. Earlier this year, Springtide released a new report on the state of religion and young people today. And it's interesting to me because it complicates that old narrative that we're all familiar with of young people have moved away from institutional religion, they're not practicing religion, they're classified as nuns. But what Ellen's group says and what Ellen explains is that young people are actually finding new ways of being religious and constructing new forms of religious identity. It's something that the Catholic Church can learn from as it seeks to minister to this new generation. Yeah, it's a great conversation, so let's take a listen. So many religious institutions have been notably dismissive of or opposed to, like, anything but like all in or all out about how you identify as a Catholic, for example, is it's about checking these boxes. Like realistically, membership as a Catholic is about baptism and not the performance of saintly moral things, although that would be great. So there's, I think the church's response, any kinds of, all kinds of churches and religious institutions is varied, but for the most part, they are interested in handing down an identity for one per- for a person to inhabit the ways that young people are picking up pieces 
of identity from myriad places is really a way of, I think, demonstrating that they're not feeling all of those pieces are available to them from one institution. Like, if nothing else, I think we can claim that. Like, we can say they didn't feel that their purpose was clear or their this aspect of their identity was accepted in this space. So they had to go look for it somewhere else. That it it often starts with a feeling that you don't fully belong in this place and that's why you have to go out from it to seek the rest of the picture. Mm -hmm. It's a challenge to those communities, right? To then go back and to try and address those needs in a in a creative way or to try, you know, to sort of have that conversation. I think that it it goes back to something that we talked about a little bit ago, like that it starts with listening. The people who are very committed to the thriving of institutions rather than the thriving of young people as kind of the centerpiece of their objectives, they're quick to have a narrative about why there's a departure. I remember being in high school. I went to a Catholic high school. I had a question about a religious question about like something doctrinal. Actually, I think that it was like, why did Mary have to be a virgin? It's very, it wasn't like a make or break it moment for me, but I was like, why'd you have to be a virgin? That seems weird. It seems kind of just like a obsession with like the sexual, the sexuality of a young woman. I didn't understand its like significance for salvation history. And, you know, I'm 16 and being like, Somebody answer this. And I was in a theology class and I asked this question and I was like, if she was sinless, which she was, why didn't she save us? Like, what's the thing here? Somebody explain this to me. And one theology teacher said, it's just what's taught. That's just the teaching. And then a while later, a different Catholic mentor, not at my high school, I asked the same question because he specifically was like, hey, do you have any questions about the Catholic faith that I can answer for you or that's like you wrestling with? And I asked the exact same question. Why a virgin? Why sinless? What, what, what difference does it make? And it wasn't necessarily that this was like that the answer was important, but he was like, oh, very cool question. I totally get where you're coming from. The reasons that like in my own reading and research, you know, are X, Y, Z, like it took two minutes, you know? Yeah. And it was a point for me in my like religious question asking, but I, I felt like asking questions is not the same as expressing doubt. And there are ways to ask questions that are exciting because the tradition is rich enough to bear my questions. Mm-hmm. And that was a turning point for me that I was like, this is, this can be positive. This can be exciting. It doesn't have to be like a tisk tisk to ask questions. But I think like lots of young people leave before they get a chance to ask a question, like a question about their identity, their sense of belonging, a doctrinal question if it's doctrinal, a question about the history of their institution or something that comes up in their holy text. If they don't feel safe to ask that question, they will just slowly sneak out the back door. And I think that's why relational authority matters because it's not necessarily about the answer somebody gave me as much as the way they responded to my me having a question at all. Mm-hmm. This is related, I think, to the identity question because it feels like if you don't feel safe enough to even ask a question or clarify something and you wonder if this space is for you and you don't have somebody there you can even find out or ask, you know? you just slip away. So I think it can be something that institutions learn from rather than like prescribe a narrative about these departures. 
I think when we think about these losses or the decline in institutional religion, we're often thinking about only the loss and like fair. There's something to like mourn, like we're we are we're missing something by losing the opportunity to gather on regular on a regular basis, like the ritual of it. Like there's a lot of very important things happening in institutional religion. But at the same time, the things that need to stay, like trust and meaning and identity and belonging, those things can just be like reimagined. Like we can figure out new ways to find expression for things like the common good. I don't think we're ever going to lose the things that are most important. I think religions have a responsibility to stay relevant. And part of how they do that is by meeting the real needs of real people. And you have to respond to real people then, not projections of real people or ideas of real people, you know, but the people who show up at your door. Thanks for listening to this special year-end episode of the Commonweal Podcast. Just a reminder that you can listen to these episodes in full. And in fact, you can listen to the entire library of Commonweal Podcasts on our podcast page or wherever you find your podcasts. And I'll invite you to come back for more in 2021. We'll be back in January with new episodes. But until then, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year from everyone at Commonweal. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi.